This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Hi, welcome back. It could be argued that the best original movie song to never receive an Academy Award nomination came out in 1979. I'll tell you more about that song later in this episode, but while you're learning about the five songs that did earn an Oscar nomination, think about the one that could have easily replaced one of them. The reason why the song never got to battle for an Oscar might seem a little surprising to you, and it's a story that is unlike any other in Hollywood history. So, just put that aside for now as we start talking about the five songs from 1979 that got those Oscar nominations. And remember, there will be plot details revealed throughout, so you have been warned. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, movie musicals were on a sharp decline in popularity again with the public. Even though Grease made more than $100 million, the other musicals that year were not as good and spent a lot of money that studio executives wished they hadn't spent. In 1979, there was only one major original movie musical made, and it came from the mind of a TV producer who believed it was finally time to take his puppet creations to the big screen. That producer was Jim Henson, the creator of The Muppets. His ideas for puppets that were made of plush fabric instead of wood made him famous in the early 1960s, and the characters he created skyrocketed into fame when they joined Sesame Street in 1969. In 1976, Henson moved to England with his production team to produce The Muppet Show, which was a major success all over the world. It only seemed natural that a movie was next, and an origin story about how the Muppets got together was born. The Muppet movie featured Kermit the Frog, voiced by Jim Henson, in his film debut, opening the movie in a swamp playing a banjo and singing The Rainbow Connection. The song takes a pot shot at songs that are spoken of rainbows and wishing for a better life on the other side of them. It remains hopeful about wishing on rainbows, and as it happens, Kermit's performance of the song will get him out of the swamp on the road to showbiz. Why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it. The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers, and me 
said that every wish would be heard and answered when wished on the morning star. Somebody thought of that and someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. What's so amazing that keeps us stargazing? And what do we think we might see? Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. All of us under its spell, we know that it's probably magic. Have you been half asleep, and have you heard voices? I've heard them calling my name. Is this the sweet sound? that calls the young sailors the voice might be one and the same i've heard it too many times to ignore it it's something that i'm supposed to be someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me The Rainbow Connection was the third song nomination for Paul Williams, whose last song nomination turned out to be an Oscar winner for Evergreen for A Star Is Born. Evergreen was the only song from A Star Is Born that was not written by Paul Williams and his songwriting partner Kenny Asher, and their collaboration continued with The Muppet Movie. Paul Williams was a guest star in the first season of The Muppet Movie, and he made such an impression on Jim Henson that he was immediately asked to help make the debut movie of The Muppets into a musical. What Williams found was a rare instance of zero interference in the songwriting process. When it came time to writing The Rainbow Connection, Williams said he and Asher were influenced by the Oscar-winning song When You Wish Upon a Star, and not the Oscar-winning song Over the Rainbow, as you might think. Kenny Asher and I sat down to write these songs, and we thought, Kermit, he's like every frog, Paul Williams said in an interview in 2015. He's the Jimmy Stewart of frogs. So how do we show that he's a thinking frog? and that he has an introspective soul, and all that good stuff. We looked at his environment, and his environment is water and air, and light. And it just seemed like it would be a place where he would see a rainbow. But we also wanted to show that he would be on this spiritual path, examining life and the meaning of life. So that's kind of heavy stuff for a kid's movie, but that didn't hurt the movie or the song itself. The Rainbow Connection was the one song that had a life outside the movie, playing often on the radio and getting as high as number 25 on the Billboard charts in fall of 1979. That's not bad for a song performed by a non-human. 
The Rainbow Connection is also performed in the finale with new lyrics as Kermit and his friends begin filming the story of their journey to Hollywood. After Gonzo destroys the set, the hole in the ceiling lets a rainbow in, and close to 200 Muppets finish off the song. That shot was one of the trickiest in the whole movie, since every Muppet needed at least one puppeteer, which meant in the long shot, there are more than 200 puppeteers hiding in a pit underneath the Muppets, making their mouths and arms move. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? That's part of what rainbows do. Rainbows are memories. Sweet dream reminders. What is it you'd like to do? All of us watching and wishing we'd find it. I'm you're watching. Someday you'll find it. The rainbow. First time in history, four songs from one movie made it past the first round of nomination voting by the Academy, setting up the possibility that there could be more than one song from the Muppet movie getting an Oscar nomination and making history. But it wasn't meant to be. The other three songs, I Hope That Something Better Comes Along, Movin' Right Along, and Never Before, Never Again, are fun songs by Paul Williams and Kenny Asher but they don't linger in the mind as much as The Rainbow Connection. The one song that I think could have made it through was Movin' Right Along, a traveling song that Kermit and Fozzie Bear sing as they set off from the Florida swamp to Hollywood. A frog and a bear seeing America. Moving right along in search of good times and good news With good friends you can't lose This could become a habit Opportunity knocks once, let's reach out and grab it yeah. Together we'll nab it We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cabin Cabin? Moving right along Footloose and fancy free 
getting there is half the fun. Come share it with me. Moving right along. We'll learn to share the load. We don't need a map to keep the show on the road. Hey, Fozzie, I want you to turn left if you come to a fork in the road. Yes, sir, turn left at the fork in the road. Permit! I don't believe that. Moving right along, we found a life on the highway. And your way is my way. So trust my navigation. California, here we come to high in the skyland. Palm trees and warm sand. Though savvy, we just left Rhode Island. We did what? Just forget it. I'm moving right along. Hey, L.A., where have you gone? Send someone to fetch us. We're in Saskatchewan. I'm moving right along. You take it. You know best. Hey, I've never seen the sun come up in the west. As the only major movie musical of 1979, The Muppet Movie was a slam-dunk nominee in the Best Song Score and Adaptation category. It was one of the top 10 movies of 1979, making more than $60 million in a lackluster year for the box office, given that only one movie made more than $100 million that year. The sequel to Rocky underperformed at just $85 million, even though it featured another montage training scene and the finale that everyone wanted in the original. But alas, no new original song in Rocky II. Of the five films that contained an Oscar-nominated song in 1979, the biggest moneymaker was Ten, a comedy from Blake Edwards that was a major comeback for the director after almost a decade of flops. Roger Ebert and pretty much all of his peers gave Ten their highest praise, not only for Blake Edwards' script and direction, but for the acting of Edwards' wife, Julie Andrews, and the breakout star of the movie, Dudley Moore. After getting his start in Britain as one half of the popular comedy duo with Peter Cook in the 1960s, Dudley Moore dabbled in a career as a film composer for British movies before deciding to pursue a film acting career in the United States. This was after he and Cook staged the Broadway musical Good Evening in 1973. Foul Play, which we featured in the previous episode, was Moore's U.S. debut as a sex-hungry man wooing Goldie Hawn. But it was Ten that got him the real attention. In this movie, Moore plays a songwriter who spends most of the movie in a midlife crisis, trying to find the woman of his dreams that he encountered on the way to her wedding, played by Bo Derek. We learn late in the movie that his character, named George, has won four Academy Awards for songwriting. In real life, only Sammy Kahn had achieved that feat, but this story doesn't seem to have any connection to Kahn's real life. I don't think Kahn was unfaithful to his wife, and his longtime writing partner, Jimmy Van Heusen, wasn't gay. But in any case, because George is a songwriter, there are portions of the movie in which we see him creating songs at the piano. We only hear one of them with complete lyrics. In what has been described as an unscripted scene, Dudley Moore, as George, sits down at the piano, turns on the tape recorder, and plays the melody of a song he has just conceived while on vacation in Mexico. Dudley Moore was supposed to just play about a minute of the melody while the crew set up the camera and lights for shooting the next day. But Blake Edwards loved Dudley Moore's performance, 
not just of the music, but through his facial expressions of what he was trying to communicate about his seemingly unsuccessful track record with women. This is the new one, Hugh.
This melody would become the base for the Oscar-nominated song, It's Easy to Say, and we get to hear the lyrics in the final scene of the movie. George has realized that Bo Derek's character isn't really a 10, and that the woman of her dreams is his sometime girlfriend, Sam, played by Julie Andrews. She has seemingly moved on from their unstable relationship during his time in Mexico with Bo Derek, but in the end, she comes back to him as he is performing this song. On the surface, it's a classic torch song about how it's seemingly easy to end a relationship, but it is just as easy to say I love you. George starts singing the song alone at his home, but Sam arrives and joins in. The part where the sound is a little lower is where we see Sam outside arriving in her car. It's easy to say It's over The song is performed only on piano, a notable change from most movie songs performed on screen. Sometimes we see one or two instruments played while we hear a full orchestra on the soundtrack. This is just Dudley Moore and his piano. And Julie Andrews too, who got to sing a lot in this movie, probably more than she had in at least a decade. This marks the fifth Oscar-nominated song that Julie Andrews has originated. The first was Chim Chim Cheree from Mary Poppins 15 years earlier, and the last came in 1968 with the title song to Star. In that time, Andrews remained busy in the movies, including making several TV specials that were immensely successful. 
but nothing was close to the success she had in the 1960s when she was the number one movie star. But thanks to her husband, Blake Edwards, she remained a major part of the movie industry. The music for It's Easy to Say was written by Blake Edwards' longtime composer, Henry Mancini, who was also having her career come back with his work on 10. With the exception of Silver Streak in 1976, none of Mancini's scores were featured in notable movies since Darling Lily in 1970. 10 earned Mancini two Oscar nominations, one for his score and one for the song It's Easy to Say, with first-time nominee Robert Wells. After the disastrous reviews for Darling Lily pointed out the unimpressive song score that Mancini wrote with Johnny Mercer, those two parted ways, never to work again. Before working with Mancini on 10, Wells helped Mancini write a song for the second Pink Panther movie, A Shot in the Dark, called The Shadows of Paris. That song didn't find any life outside the movie in 1964, and Wells knew all about what it took to make a popular song. With Mel Torme, Wells wrote The Christmas Song in 1945, and it became one of the most performed Christmas songs of all time, most notably by Nap King Cole. At 57 years old, Wells found it was never too late to get an Oscar nomination. Mancini was only two years younger than Wells, and the two nominations that year were his 15th and 16th. When the movie The Other Side of the Mountain became a surprise box office hit for Universal, the studio looked hard for another love story about two lovers trying to overcome tragedy. Fred Weintraub and Paul Heller came through with The Promise, about a young couple whose lives are upended by a car accident. Critics weren't too keen on what they felt was a very predictable story that wasted the talents of its lead actors. Stephen Collins and Kathleen Quinlan are the star-crossed lovers as Michael and Nancy, and their love pact is put to the test after the car accident leaves her face scarred. Michael's mother, played by Oscar winner Beatrice Strait, bribes Nancy to never see Michael after paying for her facial reconstruction, believing Nancy could hurt Michael's road to a prosperous career. But true love is not going to be deterred, and the Oscar-nominated song from the movie proves that. It's called I'll Never Say Goodbye, and it kicks off the movie during the opening credits. We see Michael and Nancy holding hands as they walk down the street, and later as they attend a carnival. I can hardly take my eyes from yours How far can I go? Walk away The thought would never cross my mind I couldn't turn my back on spring or fall Your smile leaves I'm not afraid to 
lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman come from the promise of the title, which Michael makes to Nancy before the accident. They are performing an unofficial wedding ceremony on a cliff overlooking the ocean. And I promise I promise never to say goodbye to you. Though many of the great song lyrics come from the minds of the lyricists, this time the Bergmans were inspired by Michael's words. The song gets new lyrics from the Bergmans in the end credits, something they have done very well through their career as movie songwriters. Predictably, Michael and Nancy found their way back to each other at the end of the movie, and Michael is able to keep his promise. David Shire wrote the score and the music for the film's theme song. This was his first Oscar nomination after a five-year career as a film composer. He started out working on TV musical specials before getting his big break writing the score for his brother-in-law, Francis Ford Coppola's film, The Conversation, in 1974. Coppola and Shire were connected through Talia Shire, who was Coppola's brother and Shire's wife, until they divorced in 1980. Melissa Manchester sang I'll Never Say Goodbye, and at only 28 years old is one of the youngest singers to originate an Oscar-nominated song, though Michael Jackson pretty much still holds that at 14 years old. Manchester was well-connected in the 1970s, singing backup for Bette Midler, studying her craft with Barry Manilow, and writing songs with Carol Bayer Sager. She had a couple of top 10 songs in the early to mid-1970s and made her movie song debut here. The commercial release of I'll Never Say Goodbye didn't do much to bolster Manchester's career, 
since it never made an appearance on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. It briefly showed up on the adult contemporary charts, but only for a couple of weeks in late spring 1979. Manchester made history as the third person to originate two Oscar-nominated songs in one year, following in the footsteps of Fred Astaire and Maureen McGovern. Manchester's second song of 1979 was Through the Eyes of Love, from a movie that was very much like The Promise, and The Other Side of the Mountain all rode into one. It's called Ice Castles, and it was a fictional story about an ice skater named Lexi, whose Olympic dreams are dashed after an accident renders her virtually blind. Yes, calling the title song Through the Eyes of Love is a little bit on the nose about a film about a blind girl. It's just a generic love ballad when it's first heard over the opening credits where Alexis is seen skating on a frozen lake. Since I've 
Much later, when Alexis crashes into a table during a skating performance, causing a brain bleed that goes to her optic nerves, the theme song takes on a very real meaning. Alexis is in love with a hockey player named Nick, and it's his love and encouragement that keeps her motivated to get back on the rink. She can't really see through her own eyes, and it's through love that life takes real meaning. The song is played a second time, just after Lexi has returned to competition and received a rousing ovation after a flawless performance. Nick escorts her to the center of the rink as the crowd goes wild, and while their applause dies down, Melissa Manchester returns to sing in front of a more robust orchestration with a stronger, more optimistic vocal. Stay with me. <laughs> you bet. Marvin Hamlish was the film's composer, and he used the melody from the song as the love theme for the movie. It's pretty much the basis for every music cue in the movie, including both of Alexis' skating routines that we see. Though it's kind of the easy way for Hamlish to score the movie, it works because it keeps the song in our minds until it's strong reprise at the end. He wrote the song with girlfriend Carol Bayer Sager, who helped him write the song Nobody Does It Better a couple of years earlier. It's Bayer Sager who brought in Melissa Manchester to sing this song, having written some of Manchester's biggest hits in the early to mid-1970s. Bayer Sager seemed to be happy being one of those songwriters who stayed out of the spotlight, letting the performers take the glory for the songs that became popular. But Bayer Sager's output in the 1970s was tremendous and is worthy of recognition, 
even if it didn't result in a lot of number one songs. Being a female songwriter at the time was not as unheard of as it was before the 1970s, and many female artists seemed to seek out female songwriters such as Carol Bayer Sager to help write a song from the female perspective. Like Melissa Manchester, David Shire was also involved in two Oscar-nominated songs in 1979. In addition to writing the music for I'll Never Say Goodbye, he wrote the music for the Oscar-nominated song It Goes Like It Goes from the movie Norma Ray. This made Shire the first person to earn two Oscar nominations for Best Original Song in the same year since Sammy Kahn and Johnny Mercer did it in 1964. Starring Sally Field as Norma Ray, the movie highlights one woman's fight to unionize her textile factory. It was a huge hit for 20th Century Fox, who earned nearly $10 million in profits from the movie's $4 million budget. And it changed Sally Field's trajectory as an actress, helping her move away from her work on TV as Gidget and The Flying Nun. The movie's opening credits feature not only real-life childhood photos of Sally Field, but also a song that is made to set up the working-class life of the characters we're about to meet. It Goes Like It Goes relies heavily on piano with a few strings thrown in. Perhaps David Shire didn't have much money in his music budget to hire the full 20th Century Fox Orchestra, or perhaps the song sounded better with lighter orchestrations. No matter the reason, it allows Norman Gimbel's lyrics to stand out. According to the song, there is nothing amazing about the lives most people lead. They are born and grow up to lead fairly ordinary lives, similar to the characters in Norma Ray, who are pretty much expected to work in the textile mill without any question. Well, except Norma Ray, of course, who sparks a big change in her small town. Gimbel had been writing rock-flavored theme songs for TV for the past four or five years, but the lyrics he wrote for movie songs seemed to be very middle-of-the-road, but still very effective. It's a little bit better 
Gimbel was working for the first time in many years without his writing partner Charles Fox, who had written the music with Gimbel for several popular TV show theme songs. Because Fox and Gimbel were working for 20th Century Fox's TV production arm in 1979, working on the theme song for the TV adaptation of the movie The Paper Chase, Gimbel was easy to reach when Shire was looking for someone to put lyrics under his theme music. Shire didn't write much music for Norma Ray, with only about Five minutes a movie featuring any underscore. I was surprised there was no music before or after the pivotal scene when Norma Ray stands on the table and holds up a sign saying Union. Jennifer Warnes was 32 years old when she sang It Goes Like It Goes, having been in the music business for about 12 years. She spent a little bit of her career known simply as Jennifer because she refused to change her last name to Warren instead of Warnes, and people thought her real last name was too hard to pronounce. She had released three albums by the time she was hired to sing her first movie song, and her biggest hit before them was Right Time of Night in 1976, which peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100. Warren's version of It Goes Like It Goes was never released as a commercial record, and it didn't get any radio play until country singer Glenn Campbell and pop singer Dusty Springfield recorded it separately in summer 1980. But until then, Warren's version was cemented to the movie, both in the opening credits and again in the end credits after the textile mill moves to vote to unionize. The lyrics are the same in the finale, but Jennifer Warren's puts a different spin on some of the line readings. who she is and bless the hands of a working man he knows his soul is his so it goes like it goes like the river flows and time it rolls right on and maybe what's good gets a little bit better and maybe what's bad gets gone and it goes like it goes like the river flows and time keeps rolling on and a little bit better and maybe what's better gets gone 
Though we didn't get any Billboard number one songs in the list of five nominees of 1979, it was a fairly good list. I'm sure you noticed there were no disco or rock and roll songs among the nominees, a big shift back to the traditional movie song after Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and Thank God It's Friday tried to swing the pendulum in the other direction. So remember I said at the top of the show that there was one song that didn't make the list but seemed like a shoe-in for a nomination. It's not a disco or rock song, but it arguably stands above the songs that did make the cut. That song is the title song for Bette Midler's movie debut called The Rose. The movie mirrors the life of real-life rocker Janis Joplin and her drug-fueled singing career. Nearly everyone praised Midler's debut performance, as well as the title song that comes at the end of the movie after her character, Mary Rose, dies on stage after an overdose.
Amanda McBroom wrote The Rose, and the song was picked for the film as part of the song score among many by director Mark Rydell. When the film was in its very early stages, the lead character was supposed to be called Pearl, which was Janis Joplin's nickname. But Joplin's surviving family members refused to let 20th Century Fox use Joplin's name or life story, so writers Bo Goldman and Bill Kirby had to make a lot of changes to keep the compelling story but distance themselves enough from Janis Joplin's story. One of the things that needed to change was the lead character's name, and when Rydell found the song The Rose, among many songs offered to him, the name was changed. McBroom had been working very hard in the mid-1970s to break out as a singer-songwriter, with very little luck. She had been working as a stage actress until the mid-1970s, when a friend who owned a nightclub invited McBroom to sing her own material. One of those songs was The Rose, which was written in 1977 and had been performed in 1978 on Jim Neighbors' TV talk show. When The Rose was submitted as a song for Academy Awards consideration, the music branch reached out to McBroom to verify that the song was following the rules. Instead of lying, McBroom told the music branch that she wrote the song about two years earlier just for herself. Though it had not been recorded for commercial release, the music branch stood firm on the rule that stated, quote, The work submitted must be specifically created for the eligible film. The rules also specified that the song had to be recorded for the film, quote, prior to any public performance in or exploitation through any of the following media. End quote, then lists television as one of them. That means that her Jim Neighbors appearance disqualified the song. In an interview McBroom did in 1997, she said, If I had lied, it would have been very bad karma. Besides, someone would have found me out. Then I would have been very embarrassed. So, no Oscar nomination for Amanda McBroom. She would go on to write songs for animated movies, almost all of which have gone directly to video. But for one brief moment, McBroom did enjoy being at the pinnacle of her career when Midler's performance of The Rose went all the way to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in spring 1980. I think we can all agree that The Rose is probably one of the top five songs in Academy history not to receive a nomination. Unlike other songs, though, there was a good case for it not getting the nod since it technically didn't follow the rules, but that doesn't take the sting out of it. Before the Oscar nominations were announced on February 25, 1980, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association made the choice to allow The Rose to compete for the Golden Globe for Best Original Song alongside The Rainbow Connection and Through the Eyes of Love. The title song to the Barbara Streisand-Ryan O'Neill comedy, The Main Event, was also a Golden Globe nominee, and it might have been made as an Oscar nominee if perhaps the Academy still believed honoring disco music was the right path.
Paul Jabara, the writer of the Oscar winner Last Dance, co-wrote this song with Bruce Roberts, and it went to number three on the Billboard charts in summer 1979. Now, why didn't a song written by an Oscar winner, sung by an Oscar winner, get into the final five for 1979, or even just the top ten? Perhaps because the song feels like it isn't connected to the feel of the movie? It comes during the end credits after the big fight that doesn't really happen, and the disco beat is a bit jarring. The Rose won the Golden Globe that year, giving Amanda McBroom one big win for her song. Ten weeks later, on April 14, 1980, 11 songwriters were probably breathing a bit easier that The Rose wasn't a nominee on Oscar night. Before the award could be handed out, the business of performing the nominated songs had to be settled. Henry Mancini was serving as musical director of the show again, so if It's Easy to Say won the Oscar, he would have to come up from the orchestra pit to receive his award. Perhaps it's not surprising that Julie Andrews wasn't going to attend the Oscars and sing with Dudley Moore as she did in the film. Moore did come to the show and sing It's Easy to Say, joined this time by Helen Reddy. Melissa Manchester sang both of the songs she originated on film, doing them back-to-back. Only It Goes Like It Goes was not performed by its original singer. I bet the decision was made to hire Dionne Warwick to sing it because Jennifer Warnes was not a well-known name. Warwick did a fine job interpreting the song, but it wasn't going to convince a record label to get Warwick into a studio to put down her own commercial version. The highlight was seeing Kermit the Frog sing The Rainbow Connection. It was the first non-human song performance on the show, Though, of course, there were humans out of sight making the magic happen. Miss Piggy came out to introduce the song, though she spent most of the time complaining with Johnny Carson that she wasn't nominated for her performance in the Muppet movie. She thought the songwriters Kenny Asher and Paul Williams were boycotting the Oscars in defense of Miss Piggy, but we saw them both in the audience laughing and, I hope, being part of the joke. But things got serious when Hollywood Old and New came out to announce the winner of Original Song. Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John named Norman Gimble and David Shire as the new Oscar winners for It Goes Like It Goes. Gimble gave the usual thanks to the producers, and Shire thanked Jennifer Warnes before adding thanks to his son, Matthew. He also thanked his wife, Talia Shire, who, quote, 
taught my heart some things it needed to learn before I was able to know how much my music could really be loved. End quote. His famous Oscar-nominated wife must not have been in the audience because the camera cut to a shot of Norma Rae herself, Sally Field, who was happy to see her film get its first award of the night, not too long before she would win the film's second award as the year's Best Actress. Critics weren't too happy about the Academy's choice for Best Song. Tom Shales of the Washington Post wrote in his column about the Oscar show that It Goes Like It Goes was already forgotten, and that the Rainbow Connection would live on longer. And he wasn't wrong about that. Thanks to the ongoing success of The Muppet Show and future sequels, the Rainbow Connection has enjoyed a much longer life than any of its nominated competition. This would be the last time David Shire and Norman Gimbel will earn Oscar nominations. Shire would continue a very long career as a film composer, but none of the films he wrote for would warrant a song. Gimbel would ease into retirement as the 1980s went on, enjoying the continued success of his English-language translation of The Girl from Ipanema. That song would become a mainstay in the movies, giving Gimbel some big royalty checks into the 21st century. Robert Wells and Henry Mancini would not work together on another original movie song, which resulted in Wells earning his only nomination for It's Easy to Say. It was also the final year that Paul Williams and Kenny Asher would earn Oscar nominations, and circumstances would keep them from being a part of the already discussed sequel to the Muppet movie. Paul Williams struggled greatly with drug and alcohol abuse in the 1980s, nearly wrecking his career. His songwriting output in the 1980s is almost virtually non-existent, as he sought out rehab on several occasions and was seemingly not suitable for work until he was able to get clean. In 1990, Paul Williams finally kicked his addictions and has been sober ever since. Without Williams as a collaborator, Kenny Asher slipped into retirement as a songwriter, though kept working through the 1980s and 1990s as a keyboard player on several pop albums. I think you could say that the year 1979 could be called a low year in the history of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. But things are going to pick up with movies released in 1980, with some Oscar history being made as one studio tried to return to the musical genre that made it famous in the 1950s. And an iconic singer-songwriter makes her Oscar debut with a movie and song that has lived on through generations. I can't wait to talk about those songs with you on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Everybody, thank you so much for singing along with me on this episode. We'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.